here today, and in case you didn't know, my name's Dave, and I am one of the pastors here at Cross Point, and it's my pleasure to be able to share God's Word with you today. We're starting a new series today. Uh, if you are a guest with us today, you chose a great day to, to be our guest because we're starting a new series. We're going to be in the, in the book of 1 John for about 10 weeks leading up to Easter, and the title of the series is Signed, Sealed, Delivered. And no, the series is not inspired by Stevie Wonder. We, uh, I, didn't, I didn't choose the title, but I think it's a really cool title. And um, what it has to do with is, is simply um, us knowing what we have. Us knowing what God has freely given to us and, and having assurance that our future is secure. That's, that's what the series is really about. That's what we believe the letter of First John is about, and so we're going to begin to explore that today. And I want to, I want to tell you something that I, I, I hardly, and I hardly ever, I hardly ever say stuff like this, but I, I felt the need to this morning. I, I just want to say, I think it's that today's message, and, and certainly the ones that follow, but I just want to say t- today's message is really important. And I'm going to ask you to please listen carefully. And it's not because the sermon's going to be anything special. I'm sure you could, you know, go online and find a ton of sermons that are going to be better than mine, okay? But on this text, my job is simply to, to show you the text and to make it clear. That's all I'm trying to do. And what I want to tell you is that what we read in this text this morning is, is so critically important to your life and to you experiencing God in your life. It, that's what the text is about. And I'm just going to ask that you listen carefully today. Not that you don't every week. I'm sure you listen carefully every week, but... Um, today I just feel, I felt the need to say that. So, okay, now that's out of the way. I won't tell you that again for like a year. So, one of my hobbies is coaching. And I've had the privilege of coaching a lot of different teams. I've coached a lot of different Awana Olympic teams. I've coached a few basketball teams. I've coached a lot of soccer teams. I'm actually coaching two different teams right now. I currently have a a license from the, um, a state-issued license to coach youth soccer at the competitive level at a relatively competitive level, and, I, and I, I love doing that. And so one of the things I do is I, I work with young people to instill in them a love for the game, and, and even more than that, um, to develop them as athletes, to develop their skills as athletes, as student athletes. And I was a student athlete once myself, and I, I played four sports, uh, varsity sports in high school, and I achieved some level of success. I wasn't, you know, anything special, um, but... There's one thing that I really regret, looking back on all the years that I played competitive sports, if I could go back, and I've thought about this a lot, if I could go back and do it over again, I would do it all with a lot more confidence. As a student athlete, I was, I was gifted. I had a lot of potential. But what I, one thing I didn't have was confidence. And so one thing my, my coaches, in whatever sport I was playing, they were constantly telling me, to shoot more and to swing more and to just do it, you know? They were telling me just do it before Nike even came up with that slogan because I didn't have the confidence. I never really believed that I was good enough. I, I never knew how good I was. And I never, I'll never know how good I could have been if I had actually played with confidence, you know? And now when I coach, I see that lack of assurance and confidence in other kids all the time. I see it all the time. The, certainly there are a few kids who know how good they are, and they really don't need much coaching aside from skill development. You can just give them the ball and cut them loose, you know. 
And just so, sometimes you have to tell the kid to tone it down because they're so confident. But they are the exception, let me tell you. The vast majority of kids lack confidence in their ability. And that's why I love coaching because so many kids, they need someone like me to tell them, you're better than you know. You're so much better than you even know. You can do more than you think. You have the ability to change the outcome of this game, but you have to believe that. You have to take the shot. And I, you know, one thing I know in my limited experience as a coach is that the biggest reason most student athletes never move from good to great is that they don't know what they have. They don't know what they're capable of. They aren't certain that they can win. They have talent. They have ability. They have the strength to succeed. But most of them will never reach their potential because they don't know it. They don't know it. And I really believe that the reason that most followers of Jesus don't ever move from doing good things in God's name to doing great things in God's name is the same. Most Christians do not know who they are or what they have. They just don't know. So many disciples of Jesus are trying to live right. They're trying to please God. They're trying to make the right choices. They're trying to invest in the right people and give their best. But most of them are not finding the kind of joy they hear about. They're not experiencing the kind of power and the kind of transformation and the kind of victory that they read about in God's word. And one of the biggest reasons is that they don't have assurance They don't really know that they know God. They don't really know that God is with them. They don't really know that their future is secure. They only hope that it is. There's no certainty. There's no certainty. And when, there's no, when, you're, not, when you're not certain about something, you, basic, you tend to stand still. But when you are certain about something, you act. You act on it. You move. That's the way it works. And that's why, this, that's why this is so important. And this brings us to the, this little book of the New Testament called 1 John. 1 John, it was written by one of Jesus' 12 disciples. His name was John, okay? He was the one who wrote the Gospel of John, which was his take on the life of Jesus. It's the last gospel. It comes last in the New Testament. It comes last in order. He wrote it after all the other uh, after the other authors of the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He wrote this letter as an old man, probably somewhere in his mid-70s. We don't know much about John's original audience, but we do know that his original audience faced some very real spiritual dangers. They were in danger of falling back into sin. Some of them were in danger, of, many of them were in danger of denying, they were denying their sin altogether. They were denying that they were sinners. He's writing to people who say that they love God, and that they love people, but they don't really back it up by their actions. Okay, he's, he's writing to people who have a fragile faith, mostly due to a group of people who had already left the church, but had influenced quite a few people in the church by some false teaching about the person of Jesus and what Jesus had accomplished for them. Okay, and that's, that's the reason that anyone's faith is fragile, because we question what Jesus has already done. We, we question what we already have. And that's certainly what what John's audience is questioning. And so John writes this letter to these people and to us so that we know at least two things. That's two fingers. So that we know at least two things 
who Jesus is and what we really have because of who Jesus is and what he did. That, that's what this letter is about. That's it in a nutshell. If I could sum up this, this amazing New Testament letter, that, this is how I would do it. God wants us to know him personally, and he wants us to know that we know him. He wants us to know what we have so that we can share in his life. So let's, let's look at the first few verses of the letter, the epistle to, of 1 John. 1 John verse one, chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. If you'd like to follow along with me, I'd invite you to. Open up or turn on your Bibles, and it's going to be here on the screen behind me. We're going to read this passage together. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of God. Now, when you encounter a, a really, maybe some of you, you know, you read, you hear that passage and you're like, what? <laughs> what? When you encounter a complex, a, a complex passage in the Bible like this one, this is a, this is a very dense theological passage, it's, it's, it's complicated, sometimes it just helps to break down the, the passage grammatically, okay? There's a main subject and there's a main verb in this passage. There's one main subject and one main verb, Okay? The subject is this phrase, the word of life. That's the subject of this passage. It's the word of life. What is that? What's the word of life? The word of life here most likely refers to the gospel message, which is the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. The message that God loves us and sent his only son to die on the cross so that we might experience eternal life, life with God. That's the message. This word of life, we are told, all over the New Testament, is able to make dead people come alive, to awaken people spiritually, to forgive their sins, to give them resurrection power, to rescue people from punishment, to bring strangers into the family of God, to turn pessimists and cynics and depressed people into joyful people. I mean, we could go on and on, couldn't we, about this message of life that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good news about what God has already done. That's what it is. Of course, the, the, the word of life, this phrase, could also refer to the very person of Jesus, his physical body, his human nature. And I think it does. But whether you choose one or the other, I mean, it's, it's really... The same, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is the message. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our peace with God. Our hope is that Jesus is a human being, that God became flesh. He took a body. You know, Jesus became a man, and and yet he didn't lay aside his deity. He was fully man and fully God, and that's our hope in the gospel. And that's what John wants us to know. 
It's Jesus. He makes us right with God. That's the subject of the passage, the word of life. That's what the passage is about. It's about the word of life. That's what the whole letter is about, really, this word of life. Now, what is the verb? The main verb in the passage is proclaim. Proclaim. John and his fellow apostles who've seen and heard and touched this word of life are compelled to proclaim it. That's why we have the letter. The word of life is made for one thing, proclamation. John does not deliver the gospel to us in the form of a suggestion. He doesn't say, I think this might be true. Maybe you could consider whether this might be true. He presents Christ to us as the ultimate truth and reality. He doesn't even ease us into it. He doesn't even introduce himself. He just jumps right in. He says, Jesus is the truth. He's God in the flesh. He is what's real. There's no need to search anymore for God in other people or places and things. God is here in the person of Jesus, and you can know him. The search is over. Get to know him. It's like he's saying, on this very planet that we live on right now, you know, with all of its mysteries and, and, and glory and all of its treasures and all of its suffering and evil and violence and death, the Son of God has come to us and we, have the, we had this awesome privilege of seeing him and observing him and being close to him and listening to him and even touching him. I mean, that's what we're told the disciples did. After he rose from the dead, they were able to touch him, to see that he was still flesh and bone. He's still physical. God was with us and it changed everything. And I want to tell you about it so that you may know what I know and so that you can experience what I've experienced. I want you to have my joy. I want you to have my assurance. That's what he's saying. He's inviting us into this experience with him, this relationship that he has with the Son of God. He wants us to have that. So the subject is the word of life. The verb is proclaim. But the goal of this passage, the goal of this passage, and this is what I really want you to, you to see this morning, is fellowship. It's all about fellowship with the Father and with his Son. Look with me again at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, to believe what the apostle is saying, to believe his eyewitness account, the historical evidence, to believe it, is to enter into some kind of union with him and his companions, which means union with the Father and his Son. That's what we're, that's what we're after. That's the goal. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of this verse, this verse 3, he said, here is the whole object, the ultimate, the goal of all Christian experience and all Christian endeavor. This beyond any question is the central message of the Christian gospel and of the Christian faith. So if the question is, what is the thing that we need to be confident in? What is the thing we need to be certain about? What is the thing we need assurance in? The answer is fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, the goal of this gospel proclamation, according to this passage, is not salvation. It's fellowship with God. 
which isn't very different from salvation. I mean, we need both. They go together. But fellowship with God and His Son, Jesus, is the goal. That's the goal of gospel proclamation. It's a relationship with the Father, a life-giving relationship with God. That's, that's the goal of sharing the gospel with anybody. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24. The prophet says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. It's always been about knowing God. It's always been about that. Jeremiah and John are after the same thing. So are all the biblical authors. They all want the same thing. To understand and know God. To share in his life. Is that what you want? Do you want to know God? Do you want a relationship with him? Do you want to get closer and closer to him? Do you want to share in his life? Listen, it's, it's, common, it's, it's common for people to want to know God, but to feel like they don't, to feel like he's out of reach. It's common for us to wonder if we really know God or to think that maybe God is beyond knowing, to think that we've blown it with God, to think that because of, what, because of our past or because of our present, because of whatever we're entangled in, we couldn't possibly know God. God's not interested in knowing us. He's not interested in speaking to us. So let's talk about why that is. Let's talk about some of the obstacles to fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus. Let's talk, about, let's talk about why we don't have the confidence that we should. Let's talk about that for a minute. What are some obstacles to fellowship with the Father God? Well, one for sure is suspicion or mistrust. Many people just simply do not trust God. They wonder if God's really on their side. They're not sure that He knows us and that He loves us and that He wants to be with us. So they don't trust him. They're suspicious of God's intentions. That will keep you, if you're suspicious of God's intentions in your life, it will keep you from knowing God. It will keep you from growing in your relationship with God. Secondly, sin. You knew that already. You didn't even need me to tell you that. Sin keeps us from knowing God, especially unconfessed, unrepentant sin always keeps us from knowing God as he really is and growing in our relationship with with Jesus Christ. It always keeps us from intimacy with God. Thirdly, a guilty conscience. That's what happens when we sin. We carry guilt around in our hearts at times. We have a guilty conscience. We condemn ourselves. We're afraid that God wants to punish us or that he's going to punish us. We, we, we start relating to God as if we owe him, as if we have to pay him back for this debt that we've created and that until we pay him back, he's disappointed with us and he's looking at us with some condemning face. And we, we can only hope that by the end of our life, we've paid him back enough. If that's the way that you think about God, you will not, you, you, you don't really know him. You won't grow in your relationship with him. Here's another reason, another obstacle. Living for God. Living for God. And we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but here, let me explain what I mean. What I mean is hanging on to this belief that you're saved by grace, but then you grow by doing good things for God. 
That's living for God, basically. There's a lot of people who think you, you become a better person by trying to be and by working hard and by being consistent and faithful and all of that. But that's not the gospel. That way of thinking means that God's only happy with me when I do good things and avoid bad things when I do what I'm supposed to be doing. It means that God relates to me through my performance. That's not good news. The message of the gospel is not life for God. The message of the gospel is life with God. And there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference. Another obstacle is feeling that God has been unfair to me. And this is a big one. Holding some grudge against God or being angry against, uh, towards God. Holding something against God because he took something from, from you. So here's, here's how we sometimes express that. Okay, God, you told me to pray more, so I did. You told me to ask whatever I wanted to bring my desires and my troubles to you, so I did. I prayed, I cried out to you, I poured my heart out to you, and you said no. Now what? How many times are you going to say no? How many times are you going to deny my request? How many times am I going to walk away from you empty-handed? Sometimes I feel like you're just stringing me along, God, leading me to believe that you will actually do more than I could possibly ask or imagine. And then when I'm at my most vulnerable point, you say, ha ha, I got you again. I'm in control. The answer is no. You thought I was going to do what you wanted, but once again, you're wrong. (laughs) I mean, if that's what God's really like, what's the point of having a relationship with him? If that's what he's really like, if that's what what he really wants. And finally, one obstacle to relating in God, to to, uh, knowing God, is simply feeling like God and me, we, we just don't have much in common. We're too different. He wants, you know, all of this, and, and I just, I'm not interested in that. God is, you know, off doing his thing, and, and that's just not my thing. We just don't have anything in common, so I guess a relationship with God is, is just not going to work. Now, those are all very real obstacles, but there's really one thing that removes Every obstacle to knowing God. Do you know what it is? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And I know the cross is not directly mentioned in this passage. But knowing God, we'll find out very soon, is not possible without the cross. Because through the death of Jesus Christ, the death of his very physical body, his fully human body, the barrier of sin is removed. Did you know that? Your condemnation is removed. Your guilt and your shame are removed. The punishment that you deserve for your sin is removed. Your anger and whatever feelings of unfairness you had are removed in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross removes our dependence on good works and our feeling that we need to live for God and pay Him back. It's all removed. At the cross of Jesus. You know what else is removed? Our differences. At the cross of Jesus, through the cross of Jesus, we become like God. Did you know that? 
through faith in the death of Jesus Christ. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. This is what the apostle says. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Listen to this. We have received all of this by coming to know him. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Did you hear that? The divine nature, we're able to, in other words, through the cross, we're able to share in God's life. That's what he's talking about. He's saying the same thing John is. Fellowship with God the Father and his son Jesus Christ, it's possible through the cross. We share in God's life. We become interested in the things God is interested in. We want, we start wanting what God wants. If you have a relationship with God, you will start wanting to be holy. You didn't want to be holy before, I can guarantee it. But through a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will. You'll start to want to be holy. You'll want people who are far from God to know God and experience his love for themselves. You'll want to spend time with God and hear from him. You didn't want that before. And the more time you spend with God in this relationship, the more you will become like God. Because that's how all relationships work. I mean, think about your marriage to your spouse. I mean, haven't you ever noticed and observed with your spouse or, or somebody else, you know, the, more, the longer we're married, the more I become like my, my spouse. Isn't that true? That's how the relationship works. That's how it works with God, too. The more time we spend with him, the more we seek him, the more we, you know, the, the, the more we obey him, the more like him we become. It's not complicated. For example, forgiveness. Let's talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things to do in life, isn't it? It's one of the hardest things. Some people, many people, are incapable of it. But when you are in a relationship with God, you realize something. God has forgiven all of my sins. He is, I'm clean. I am not guilty. Nor will I ever be. Wow, that is amazing. That's how how it is with God now. That's how we relate to him, as forgiven. And once we realize that we've been forgiven by God, all of our sins, all of our failures, we will begin to want to forgive other people. And I know this by experience, okay, because I used to be a person who did not like forgiving people. I didn't want to forgive people. I tried to, but oftentimes what I would find myself doing if someone hurt me or if someone rubbed me the wrong way, if someone took something from me, or if I didn't like someone, I was slow to forgive. Instead, what I did first was I would spend quite a bit of time imagining them fail, I enjoyed that a lot more. It was a lot more fun than forgiveness. I would just daydream about them failing or think about, you know, and hope for them to fail, hope for them to become miserable and to realize what they did and to come groveling back at my feet. And I I went through the motions. I did that for a long time. But God has changed my heart. And I'm not, you know, it doesn't mean I forgive people right away now. Like, oh, you know, whatever, you're forgiven. It doesn't really work that way. But I found the power and the ability to forgive people now. I didn't have that before. I, 
I want to forgive people. I want them to succeed. I want them to know God and experience his life because of my experience in a relationship with God. Another example is patience and gentleness. Our God is a patient God. We're told that he's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He's compassionate and loving. He's a God of steadfast love. So he's patient. He's, you know, exceedingly patient with people. With everybody, really. So when an angry person begins to share in God's life, they're transformed. I'll never forget a a testimony I heard many years ago at a baptism service we had at our church, at at our old building, a a man, a single man in his 30s stood up in front of us. This is right before he would be baptized. And with tears in his eyes and a crackling voice, he told us, I used to be a super angry person. I used to fly off the handle. I used to yell at people. I used to be out of control. But once I believed that Jesus Christ became a man and died for my sins and forgave me, my anger was gone. It was just gone. And it doesn't happen like that for everybody, I'm telling you, okay? But for him it did. He just, he stopped being angry. And he began to be patient with people. And he began to, become, to grow in his relationship with God and become more like God. And now he's a very compassionate man. He completely changed. That's not possible apart from God. Apart from this word of life. When it comes to relationships, you know, we want to be with people who share our desires and our interests and passions. And so we like to, we usually surround ourselves with those kinds of people that have the same values and convictions and interests and passions that we do. And that's how our relationship with God works. When you have this relationship, this fellowship with him, you begin to want what he wants and to become passionate about what God is passionate about. Which ultimately is people who are far from him finding redemption through Jesus Christ through faith in his death and resurrection finding life in him I mean Christians are not who they are because we're, they're better than other people they're, Christians are not Christians because they know more about the Bible than other people what makes a person a Christian is that they are a new creation they've become a partaker in the divine nature they've received God's life They have fellowship with the Father and His Son. They can say along with the Apostle John, I know Jesus Christ and He knows me. Jesus did not come to earth and die on a cross to give us a new divine deposit of teaching. He did not suffer and die to give us a new set of principles to live by so that our lives would be richer and fuller. He did not die even primarily to rescue us from punishment and to rescue us from hell. The reason that Jesus died on the cross is so that we might have fellowship with his Father and himself. So that we could have this life-giving, abiding relationship with God and with Jesus Christ. That is what discipleship is about. That's what it's all about. Do you have it? Do you have that? Do you have a relationship with God? Do you know him? Let me ask you something. When you think about your life, can you see things about yourself that are impossible to explain except for God working in your life? Do you see it? 
let me tell you something today. If you have a relationship with God, that's the best thing in your life. That is the best thing you have going for you. (laughs) Hands down. Okay, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose to give you new life, that's the best thing you have. Be confident in that. Okay, know what you have and know how good it is. I mean, what else do you have to be confident in? God didn't promise you a successful career. He didn't promise you financial security. He didn't promise you a good marriage or a great marriage. He didn't promise you well-behaved kids. He didn't even promise you kids at all. He didn't promise you a strong, healthy body or long life. So why do we boast in any of those things? Why do we place our confidence in any of those things? If you're going to have assurance of anything, let it be this, that you understand and know God. Let that be it. Let that be the thing you cling to more than anything else. Make your relationship with God the first priority of your life. Now, maybe you don't have a relationship with God. Maybe you don't think you know God. Maybe you don't trust him. Maybe you are holding something against him. Maybe you're bored with God or you gave up on God a long time ago. Well, here is an eyewitness. Here is an eyewitness of the God who became a human being. The word of life. And what you do with this word is up to you. I'm sure you have questions, you know. But I've never seen anyone's life transformed because they got all their questions answered. I've never seen that happen. What I have seen is God share his life with people who are willing to believe his promises and act on them. That's who has the joy of knowing God. God has created you for this purpose, to know him, to have fellowship with him and with his son, Jesus Christ. His promise to you is that if you trust him, he will share his life with you. He's not trying to confuse you. He's not trying to disappoint you. He's not trying to string you along. Okay? I promise you that. He wants to be known. God wants to be known. He has gone to the most extreme lengths so that we could know him. He sent his son to become a human being. Why? So that we could see what God is really like. So that we could know him. His son died on a cross and shed his blood. Why? So that we could know God. Jesus then rose from the grave and hundreds of witnesses saw him and many touched him. Why? So that we could know him. God sent his Holy Spirit to us to dwell in our hearts. Why? So that we can know him. He wants to be known. He's trying to speak to you. At this time, we're going to pray, and I'm going to close the service here in just a minute. And I'm going to ask everyone to stand at this point. And just in just a minute, I'll give you the benediction. But before I do, I'd like to close in prayer.
And I'm going to ask everyone, if you please just bow your heads and close your eyes for a minute as we prepare to go before the Lord in prayer. And I want to ask you an honest, I'm going to ask you a question. I just want your honest answer, just between you and me. Is there anyone here this morning who isn't sure that you know God? You're not sure that you have this fellowship with God that I've been talking about today, that we've read about. If you, if you don't have that kind of confidence and assurance this morning, would you please just raise your hand for me with no one looking around so that I can pray for you? Thank you. Please join me in prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come to you again in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for your word, this word of life that we've been reading about today. And Father, I ask for those people here who are here who have doubts about you or who are suspicious of you, who aren't trusting you, who don't have assurance that they know you, those, anyone here who doesn't have assurance of eternal life, that if they were to stand before you today, you would look at them and say, I know you, you are mine. I died for you. I ask God today that you would speak to them and that you would draw them into a relationship with you through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray, God, that you would be glorified in our lives this week as we go from here, that you would remind us that not only do we have fellowship with you, but we have fellowship with one another. We are united together. We are bound together through the blood of Jesus. We are your church. We are your bride. Those of us who know you will be together forever. And I pray that you'd help us to remember that this week, that we would lift each other up in prayer, that we would remember to pray for our brothers and sisters, those who are hurting, those who have lost, that we would remember each other and encourage each other along in this journey of knowing you And I thank you, God, once again for the great privilege of knowing you through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.